Hello, I'm Marcus Louth and welcome to the latest edition of the UFO Insight Podcast, where we examine all things UFOs and aliens, conspiracies and mysteries, and all aspects of the paranormal. Okay, today we will examine just some of the many reports of UFOs to have come from professional pilots and other experts in aviation, all of which have occurred while the respective witnesses have been in flight. Indeed, some of these mid-air encounters are not only some of the most intriguing, but are some of the most credible, given the experience of the witnesses involved. Perhaps a great place to start would be with the UFO sighting that arguably ushered in the start of the modern UFO era, the sighting of Kenneth Arnold, who at around 3pm on the afternoon of June 24, 1947, was piloting his A2 plane over the state of Washington, when he witnessed something that not only changed his own life, but world history. According to Arnold's account, he was on his way to Yakima for business purposes. However, aware of a reward for locating a crashed US Marine Corps transport plane, he had taken a slight detour. It was a detour that would change his life. Not able to locate any sign of the plane, he began to alter his course back to his destination and towards Mount Rainer. As he did so, however, a gleaming object in one of the plane's mirrors caught his attention. He quickly scanned the skies around him, wondering if he had miscalculated and not seen another nearby plane. However, aside from another plane miles away from him, he was alone. Then, around 30 seconds later, several flashes of light to his left caught his attention. He quickly ruled out the lights were a reflection from the sun. That, then, would leave only one possibility. The reflections must be from solid objects. Whatever they were, they appeared to fly in tight formation and moved quickly. Thinking he was witness to an experimental US airplane, he scanned the objects even closer. However, when he couldn't see a tail on the craft, he quickly dismissed this possibility. By this time, the objects had made their way to his location, each passing in front of his plane with great speed. As they did so, Arnold would take in as much detail as he could. He would later state that the craft appeared to have come from the area around Mount Baker. This is an interesting point, with many UFO sightings linked to various mountains around the world. Indeed, some of these mountains, such as Mount Shasta in California, or Brown Mountain in North Carolina, are surrounded in rumours and conspiracies of secret alien bases hiding deep within them. While there was no such phrase or notion at the time, the state of Washington and the upper northwest corner of the United States is very much a hotspot for UFO activity. Arnold would describe the objects as crescent-shaped, with wings but without a tail. They appeared to be of a metallic silver colour, which glistened brightly in the late afternoon sun. He would recall almost 40 years after the incident in 1984 that they passed directly in front of me at a distance of around 23 miles, which is not very great in the air. I judged their wingspan to be at least 100 feet across. These objects more or less fluttered like they were boats on very rough water. Using the mountain peaks to estimate their speed, Arnold would deduce they were moving between 1200 and 1500 miles per hour, which was by far much faster than any aircraft available to the US Air Force, or indeed any nation's air force at the time. They were in sight for around two minutes before they disappeared near Mount Adams. Around an hour after the sighting at 4pm, Arnold would land his plane as his planned destination in Yakima, Washington. 
He would immediately tell friend and staff at the airport, but only in private conversations. When he later flew to Pendleton, Oregon, however, reporters and airport staff were already aware of the sighting through an unknown caller from Yakima Airport. The following day, on June 25th, he would give his account to the awaiting journalists. Arnold would recall in 1984 how the term flying saucer was the result of him being misquoted. He would state, I said they flew like you would take a saucer and throw it across the water. Most newspapers misunderstood and misquoted that. They said I said they were saucer-like. I said they flew in a saucer-like fashion. The story was soon picked up by national newspapers, and then by international news wires, which while certainly not the slick 24-hour operations of today's media, were still far-reaching. So much so, that Arnold would soon feel the pressure of a combination of intrigue and ridicule. He would claim several days later that he hadn't had a moment's peace since he first told his story. He would go on to state that the whole thing had gotten out of hand. Despite this, many would see Arnold as an extremely credible witness. For all the ridicule he would undoubtedly face from some, others would note how steady his reports were. The fact he was an experienced pilot only increased this credibility. Media interest in the incident would continue. Arnold, who was in relatively new and unique territory at the time, would seemingly use the interviews unintentionally as a way of airing his theories and bouncing ideas around as to just what it was he had witnessed. Interestingly, he would perhaps be one of the first people to raise the possibility of a government cover-up involving what would become known as UFO sightings. He would tell the Chicago Times in their 7th of July edition, If our government knows anything about these devices, the people should be told at once. A lot of people out here are very much disturbed. Some people think these things may be from another planet. He would continue in his belief that to shoot one of them down would be the wrong approach of authorities. He would also state that they were travelling to some reachable destination. Furthermore, the way the crafts moved would have been impossible for human pilots to survive the pressure. He would claim in an interview in 1949 with the Saturday Evening Post that the craft were comprised of materials unknown to the civilizations of the Earth. Even decades later, he would maintain his position, stating, if it's not made by our science or our army air forces, I am inclined to believe it's of extraterrestrial origin. It is perhaps interesting that Arnold was so sure of at least a possibility that the craft he had seen was of alien origin. Remember, this was before even the Roswell crash, and certainly before UFOs and flying saucers became a part of the pop culture throughout the 1950s. In short, we can't say with any real weight at all that he might have been influenced by the social attitude of the times. While the Kenneth Arnold sighting was important and historic, in that it is largely seen as the first such sighting of the modern era, an airborne encounter that occurred slightly to the west of Mount Rainer over Alaska just short of four decades later, on the evening of November 17, 1986, is of particular interest to us here. On the night in question, at a little after 5pm, Japanese Airlines Flight 1628 was on its way to Tokyo in Japan, after initially taking off from Paris, France. However, what had been a routine flight would take a sudden strange turn when Captain Kenju Tarauchi saw something strange outside the window. Two glowing crafts were following their plane, tailing it to their left. Tarauchi's first thought suggested that they were US Air Force pilots patrolling Alaskan airspace. These patrols were regular due to how close its border was to the Soviet Union. 
A closer look, however, told the experienced pilot that these were not US airplanes. In fact, they didn't look like anything he or his crew had ever seen. Then the craft went from the left of the plane to a holding position dead in front of it, within seconds. They now realised there was no doubt they were dealing with something completely unknown. They remained in this position for several minutes, before the craft zipped back to the left of Flight 1628. Tarach would later state that this object was flying as if there was no such thing as gravity, noting how it changed its speed and direction so smoothly that it appeared to he and the crew as if it was standing still. It was then they saw the mothership. The gigantic ship looked like a flat, pale white light and was the size of at least two aircraft carriers. The huge object simply held its position in front of the plane before it and the two smaller craft disappeared. By the time another aircraft arrived to see why there had been a break in communications, the object had vanished. Flight 1628 continued on its journey without further incident, but the experience had deeply affected Captain Chirauchi. So much so, that he refused to stay silent over what he had seen. The world's press and media were more than eager to listen and print what he had to say. Such was his need to speak about the event, his employers soon removed him from active duty. He would now serve in a desk job role only. Japan Airlines did conduct an investigation into the encounter. They stated that they did believe their pilots' statements regarding what they saw. However, there was not enough proof to support their claims. Essentially, they were dismissing it and covering it up. Tarachi's new desk job perhaps a warning to other pilots who may decide to speak out over similar sightings in the future. Just short of a decade later, just after 1pm on the afternoon of January 28, 1994, after leaving Nice in France, the pilot and crew of Air France flight AF3532 also witnessed a strange curious object while in the air. In fact, the aircraft had only been in the air for around 20 minutes and was barely at an altitude of around 12,000 feet when pilot Jean-Charles Duboc was made aware of a strange object by flight attendant Valerie Chauffeur through the co-pilot. The weather conditions were perfect for flying and consequently visibility was equally good. After viewing the strange aerial anomaly for several seconds, Chauffeur would inform Duboc of the strange craft. He too had no trouble seeing the object, and although he had initially logged the object as an airplane turning at a 45 degree tilt, he and the rest of the crew knew the object was unlike anything they had seen in their flying careers. The object itself was described as having a variable form and of immense size. Furthermore, it was a dark red colour with fuzzy edges. Tubot would estimate the object was at a distance of a little over 25 miles from the left side of their plane. Later analysis and discussion would lead Dubok and investigators to estimate the craft was approximately a thousand feet across. The object itself remained in sight for around 60 seconds. However, during this time, the bizarre encounter would take another strange twist. A twist that might prove to be one of, if not the most important details of the whole encounter. As Dubok and the crew continued to watch the strange object to their left, they noticed how it was seemingly merging with the environment. In short, it appeared it was fading away into nothing. Dubot would further describe the object becoming translucent, transparent and diluted in space. This is a detail that shows up in many other UFO reports, although ones most often witnessed at night. Does this suggest that the object was not a solid nuts and bolts craft and was some kind of mirage or hallucination? 
or might it have been utilising some kind of portal or interdimensional technology? One that took it from our realm of existence into another. Might the technology have even been some kind of cloaking device that rendered the craft quite literally invisible? Following the craft's disappearance, Dubot would radio a report of the incident to the Rhymes control tower. However, Dubot would have reservations of producing a written report of the incident, such was the incredible nature of it. In fact, he would ultimately refuse to write an official report for fear of ridicule. Perhaps unknown to Dubok at the time was that the radar of the centre of air defence had tracked an anomalous object for around 50 seconds in the exact same location as flight AF3532. What's more, records would show that there should have been no other objects in the area at that time. When Dubok read about a sighting in Paris at the same time as he and his fellow crew members witnessed a strange object from their plane, he would make the decision to come forward and speak publicly of the incident. He would submit a report to the French police, who had a dedicated department to examine and review such UFO incidents. From there, several leading UFO organisations would pick up on the case, and what's more, they would appear to take the testimony of Dubok extremely seriously. There were some intriguing details that surfaced from the encounter and the data available, perhaps not least the radar tracking data. For example, Dubot would claim the object was a little over 25 miles away from their plane at the time of the sighting. However, radar data showed the distance to be barely a mile. Is this a technical issue on the part of the radar? It is unlikely. Nor, however, is it unlikely that Dubok is mistaken. Perhaps then, we are looking at once more some kind of technology that distorts radar. While that is only speculation on our part, it is perhaps something to consider. One other point to consider is that the object Dubot witnessed and the object tracked on radar was in fact two different crafts. If this was the case, was the object that Dubok and his crew saw merely a distraction? Remember, it faded away as opposed to physically moving off. If this was the case, then for what purpose might such a distraction have been created? While heading over Cleveland, Ohio on February 28, 1996, the crew of Air Shuttle Flight 5959 would notice a strange glowing craft in the immediate vicinity below them. The pilot would immediately contact Cleveland Air Traffic Control to inquire if the object was on their radar screens. The reply would come back that it wasn't. Unbeknown to the crew of the Air Shuttle 5959 flight, the crew of a nearby Masabi Airlines plane, Flight 3179, were listening in to the communications between their plane and the control tower. When they too saw the bizarre craft, they would add their report to the unfolding incident. The control tower would suggest that perhaps the object was, in fact, a reflection from a landing beacon below. However, each of the crews would reject this. At this point, the pilot of the Air Shuttle 5959 flight would make the decision to drop his altitude and observe the object from below. Upon doing so, the spinning pulsating object was still very much visible. This would dismiss the landing beacon suggestion. Following this, the Masabi 3179 pilot began to blink its lights in an effort to communicate. The object, however, would not respond. Shortly after, the object simply disappeared from sight. Perhaps also of interest is a claim from the Masabi 3179 pilot. He had received notice that one of his passengers had managed to capture a picture of the object. The control tower would respond that they would like to take a look at it. 
The picture has never surfaced in the public arena and its location is unknown. Perhaps one of the higher profile of these mid-air sightings occurred on the evening of January 6, 1995, when the pilots of a British Airways plane, Flight 5061, approached Manchester Airport arriving from Milan in Italy. Captain Roger Willis, along with co-pilot Mark Stewart, would report an incident as they flew over the Pennines. A brightly lit oval-shaped craft had screamed past the right-hand side of the plane. The object was only in sight for two, maybe three seconds. The pilots inquired with Manchester Air Traffic Control as to any other aircraft in the area. The response came back that nothing was in their airspace. And more unnerving for the pilots, radar had not picked up any unknown objects. The Ministry of Defence would investigate the sighting. According to their report, in April 1996, due to no evidence other than the pilots' testimonies, they no longer had an interest in the case. Had the incident occurred several seconds later, it would have surely been a direct hit, which would have likely destroyed the plane outright and equally likely causing the deaths of all on board. While it is speculation in retrospect, how close the incident could have been to a deadly and tragic encounter is perhaps not truly appreciated, even in the UFO community. Once more, like the many similar sightings, including those we have examined here, despite the visual sighting of the bizarre craft by the pilots, the control tower at Manchester Airport picked up nothing unusual on their radar equipment. The incident was investigated fully, however, and not only by the Civil Aviation Authority. The Ministry of Defence would even examine the sighting themselves, even conducting extensive interviews with the pilots, who would stick to the initial version of events. The incident remains without explanation. As we have examined previously, Manchester appears to be a discreet and little-known UFO hotspot, and what's more, these sightings appear to be increasing. Just short of a year after the Manchester Airport incident, on the evening of November 18, 1995, across the Atlantic Ocean over Long Island in New York, another British Airways plane, Flight 226, was approaching Long Island following their departure from London several hours earlier, when they reported a strange object nearby. Furthermore, several other aircraft, including an Airbus A340 arriving from Germany, would also report the objects at the control tower at Boston's Logan Airport. The control tower, after reporting that no other aircraft was in their location, also stated they didn't have the apparent anomaly on their radar screens. Perhaps most interesting was the dialogue between the Airbus A340 pilot and the control tower, especially following his being pressed to describe the situation. After confirming that the object didn't have any lights aside from extremely bright light on the front, the captain would state clearly, it looked like a UFO. Several sceptics would argue that the object the pilots witnessed was simply a meteorite. This was something that was outright dismissed by each of the witnesses, and the incident still requires a satisfactory explanation. Sixteen minutes after taking off from Philadelphia International Airport, at just after 5pm on August 9, 1997, Captain Phil Bobet and the crew of the Swiss Airlines flight witnessed a strange craft zipping by their plane as they made their way over Kennedy Airport in New York. The evening was perfectly clear and visibility was extremely good. So good, in fact, that downtown New York City was clearly visible from their position. 
Babette was making a routine announcement to the passengers on the radio system. However, as he did so, he would see the bizarre craft zoom past their plane. One of the first officers also saw the object, purely because he was looking out of the left side of the plane by chance at the correct time. Babette would quickly wrap up his announcement before radioing in to the control tower. He would advise them of the object they had just witnessed. He would state that he wasn't sure if it was a rocket, but it was too fast to be another airplane. The Boston Control Tower would note the incident. No further information or explanation would surface, and the incident remains a complete mystery. While flying executive employees from Sweden to Humberside in the United Kingdom on February 28, 1999, the pilots of a private plane witnessed a long cylindrical object over the North Sea, just off the coast of Denmark. They would go on to further describe the object as having a distinct red glow to it, as well as being as big as a battleship. The incident occurred at an altitude of approximately 28,000 feet. The object was beneath their plane and soaking their underside in an incandescent light. What's more, the strange glowing object would come to a sudden halt. It would then take off again at breakneck speed and vanish into the distance. The pilots would make a report as per standard procedure to the Civil Aviation Authority. However, because there was no danger to the aircraft or passengers, there was no subsequent investigation. In the aftermath of the sighting, the pilot in question, whether coincidentally or not, was on leave from the company. Consequently, they wouldn't speak to the media. Incidentally, a representative of Humberside Airport, Tracy Law, claimed there was no mention made whatsoever of UFOs in the initial report. She would even go as far as to say that that part was simply embellished by the media, as was the use of the description that the craft was as big as a battleship. Of course, whether this was an exercise in damage control or not is perhaps open to debate. Regardless of the rights and wrongs of the incident, it remains without explanation. We should keep in mind that the accounts we have examined here are but a mere handful of the plethora of such accounts that are on record, and what's more, these reports continue today. Indeed, we will return to some of these more recent airline pilot reports in a future podcast episode, but needless to say, there appears very much to have been a shift in attitude in terms of airlines allowing their pilots to speak publicly about what they have seen than there has been in past decades. What makes these reports so compelling is that their respective pilots and crew members are perhaps ideally placed, both in terms of their aerial location during the sightings and in the knowledge and experience they each have in flight and aviation to be credible, genuine witnesses. They also have very little to gain from making reports of what they have seen, with some even suffering for their honesty. Without a doubt, sightings from pilots are some of the most interesting and important on record, and we can only ask how many more might yet to be reported. For now, I will simply thank you for joining me, and be sure to leave any thoughts in the comments and check out the links for further reading on some of the cases we have been discussing here today. Remember to subscribe to our channel and follow us on social media to keep up to date on future podcasts, articles and videos. And if there is anything you want us to discuss in future podcast episodes, then get in touch at marcus at ufoinsight.com. Until next time, goodbye and take care. Thank you.